Our business model has always had to expand and contract with what's on offer. That happened during the GFC, it happened during Larry and Yasi, two pretty, pretty full-on cyclones that hit the area. And, and I felt like we'll get through this as well. It's just another hurdle that has its own set of solutions. And, and initially, you know, the solutions were hard to find. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. There are a few industries that are built on a need to adapt and evolve like the hospitality sector. It may be the toughest of times for the industry, but its innate ability to dance on shifting sand has helped many through the pandemic. Many regional restaurants deal with huge peaks and troughs based on seasons and traveller habits and have become akin to making hay while the sun shines. What has the pandemic been like for them? Nick Holloway is the owner and chef of Nunu in Palm Cove, North Queensland. Nick, how are you going? Hey, buddy. Yeah, I'm good. Sitting here looking out over the uh, Coral Sea. It's a pretty calming experience, to be honest. <laughs> well, that sounds pretty amazing. What's it like up in North Queensland at the moment with borders being shut and restaurants open? How is it for you? Yeah, it's... Uh... It's, it's, I imagine, a very, very different experience to what um, some of my other um, brethren in the industry are experiencing. We've, we've had much, much, almost business like usual, I would imagine, over the last, uh, the last few weeks. And, and, and as the weeks go by, more and more so, the sort of fear diminishes and the sense of, I'd almost say there's a sense of party in the air. You know, it's, um, it's very odd. What's this period of time been like? You're used to having peaks and troughs of business being in a sort of tourist destination. Can you, can you yeah. take us through the last couple of months and, and what it's been like for, for you up there? It's been, you know, as, as for many, and I've followed your podcast closely since the early days of the sort of the threat uh, through till now. And for us, you know, like I said, business has returned to normal somewhat. Um, obviously, it doesn't look the same financially, but the spirit of the industry is still the same, but it's been an, an amazing journey, really. That's um, just been full of crazy peaks and troughs, as you said. It, it, it came for us right on the end of our of our historical quiet season, so we were already sort of on our grubby knees at the, you know at the end of the cyclones and the monsoon and the, you know the quieter season, which I've I've come to love and I've come to really enjoy. As it's a time for me to. Um, you know, rebuild emotionally and physically and, and, and plan for the year and all of the staff, you know, tend to take long sabbaticals and get inspired again. So it's, it's always a lovely time of year, but certainly we're very eager to sort of get back into it. And uh, I was actually on holidays in Victoria down in uh, southeast Gippsland when I first started to hear about it on the news and I was very scared. I've, maybe I've read too many, um, too many dystopian and novels and watch too many movies and I, I really thought that there was something terrifying about to happen and, and I carried that forward and kept telling everyone I knew I'm worried about this I'm worried about this and then it, you know it started to grow and grow and grow and then for us I you know I, I was really happy when they finally told us we had to close because up until my anxiety was through the roof at that point in time and uh, I remember working on the Friday night service, just thinking, "This is just not going. This is not going to happen. This is like some kind of viral orgy." You know, at that time, the, the 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 fear was all around surfaces and contact, and I just just couldn't see how it would work. I just couldn't imagine it. We had dwindling customers, 
and we really needed a hand forced at that point in time. So I was extremely happy about it for all that it was scary and foreign and new and, you know, I was very rattled by it at the start. But I finally sort of found myself, I had to take a week off at home. So after, you know, after we were told we had to close and on the Monday morning I had to stand down all of my staff because we honestly had no idea what the future looked like and at the end of whilst we do have savings at the end of the summer we're not exactly um you know flush and so uh, it was horrible i cried all day <laughs> sat in an empty restaurant by myself and wondered what the future looked like you've had the restaurant for a long time what was it like in that period did you have concerns about the future of the restaurant yeah, absolutely. But then I also don't have, I, didn't, I never had concerns about the future of of what I do as a person. You know, like I, I, I feel like this has been a very canonizing experience for a lot of people. And for some, for some, it's, a, it's the realization that they don't want to be doing what they're doing. And for some of us, it's been incredibly liberating in many ways because this is exactly what I want to do. And, and I, you know, it's a well-worn trope, but I really do believe the greatest adversity provides the greatest opportunity. And I think that there is always going to be a demand for the craft that we offer. And whilst, uh, <coughs> you know, sorry, I get, I get all shaken up talking about this stuff. Whilst, um, you know, there's this thing that's trying to divide us, the, the very craft that we're all so invested in is exactly what brings people together. And, uh, and I really noticed that early on, you know, we've got an ice cream shop and, and people still want joy. They still want something to do. They can't, you can't remove joy. So, the business, you know, the ice cream shop sort of poked along and kind of became the battleground for us to keep just finding things to do. You know, it was just crazy at the start. I mean, much like the rest of Australia, we became, whilst we caught it, we baked already. We, I baked with a vengeance. <laughs> <laughs> and I made bread for just about anyone who'd, who'd, who'd might text me and I would deliver it to their house. And then wow. my, when, we, when we were told we could do, uh, we made cakes, we made sandwiches. I mean, I don't. I don't differentiate between toast and degustation. I think it's all the same. It's all the same craft. So, uh, yeah, and then we, my wife said, right, we're going to do takeout, but she had this idea rather than just roll out Nunu each weekend, we'd do Nunu night in. And, and that concept was really, really, she had a fantastic vision really because it gave us the opportunity to visit a different country every weekend. So we did it for 12 weeks every week where... We bought, started to bring the team back in. We'd, we'd, we'd talk to everyone all week during social media. And um, it really brought the community together because when they looked at dining options rather than just say, you know, well, we can get pizza, we can get Thai takeaway or we can get Nunu, every weekend Nunu was different. So we started to really start to build this fantastic network of people that were traditionally our, um, our patrons anyway. But you could tell that there was this sense of community. There was this sense of belonging to something like a club and everyone was so excited about what we we're going to do the following weekend and would contribute their ideas. And then we'd, we'd start doing the delivery service and we did it all and didn't do any pickup at all, did all home delivery. And it's a, it's a testament or I suppose credit to the sort of community you build as to how your staff and how the populace responds to it. I mean, my SOM, Miles Brown, who's been with me for, 14 years or something he was one of our head drivers <laughs> and taking people cocktails and wine and my kids would run in the you know ride in the car with with my wife or my business partner and they'd all run food in and it became a really lovely lovely and heartwarming experience to be honest you mentioned how much you've realized that you love your craft was it were there challenges 
um, for you as a chef changing cuisines every week during that time? No, there was I, I found that just really, really exciting. And, you know, like I said, I think that there is almost a, you know, the silver lining is that rebirthing, that sense that I remember reading a Scott Pickett article really early on, and I think it was in The Australian, about you have to really ask yourself, is this what you want to do? And I've never, never given a toss about rolling up my sleeves and just leaning into something. And there's times to lean in and there's times to lean out and the, the good times pass just as quickly as the bad times, you know. And I found it really exciting. And, and perhaps, you know, not, not that I had grown... I had grown a long way away from my customer base, but we were getting increasingly bigger. And, you know, just to get back to that hand-to-hand combat, that really being an essential restaurant and, and, and meaning something to Cairns. I mean, I've always considered uh, Nunu a Palm Cove and Cairns restaurant. And, and whilst we have been very well um, looked after by the Eastern Seaboard, the truth is we're, we're, we're a place that is about a location and always have been. And that's, that's why I felt so head over and heels in love with this place when I moved here so long ago. You know, and I thought I was going to be here for three years and I've ended up, I'll be here forever. And if we just put down roots, it's so, it's intoxicating. It's everything. I just love it. Yeah, you mentioned how intoxicating the location is and you briefly touched on cyclones and monsoons not many restaurateurs deal with that sort of thing what's it like in that season how do you cope with that well again i think that's why i feel like we were so uniquely positioned to handle this crisis i'm going to whilst this is unprecedented that goes without saying but we have faced many of these things before and we do so on a season in a seasonal fashion uh every year we have to tighten our belts as People, you know, don't like to travel as much when it's so hot and, and steamy and stormy and, you know, just delicious. And I love, I actually love that time of year. It's my favourite. Um, and we, we are a lot quieter. And so because of that, our, our business model has always had to expand and contract uh, and you know, breathe in and out with, with what's on offer. That happened during the GFC. It happened during Larry and Yasi, two pretty, pretty full-on cyclones that hit the area. Um, and, and I felt like we'll get through this as well. It's just another hurdle that has its own set of solutions. And, and initially, you know, the solutions were hard to find, but, but they, they presented themselves. And I think that if you put yourself in a position where you allow those solutions to come to you, you allow yourself to be receptive to the possibility that this, you know, that this could be a good thing in some bizarre and macabre way, you know, I, I, it can't all be doom and gloom. And, and then we had this crazy... <laughs> oh, it's, an, it's been a wild ride. My wife somehow started whispering to us that she had secured some kind of movie deal for us to cater for. Uh, and this, this happened at the end of our Nunu night in. start, And I couldn't believe it. I, I was like, you've got to be crazy. She's like, no, nah, the hotel... The hotel and I, we, we think we're going to get it. And there were some stars coming in from LA and they were flying in. To, to quarantine in Brisbane and then coming up and they were taking over the whole resort that we're not a part of but we're uh, located right next to. They were going to take it over as a bubble and they had to get it through Queensland Health. And I just kept thinking, this is not going to happen. There is no way that this we're going to pull this off. But as sure as shit, <laughs> the two days before they actually arrived, uh, it was actually it was happening. So we did seven-day-a-week breakfast, lunch and dinner catering for a full crew and cast of 80 people for six weeks, right smack bang in the middle of all this. 
which was just nuts. It was just crazy. And again, I haven't, I haven't done that sort of thing. <laughs> what sort of food did you find yourself turning your hand to? Well, just looking after people, the same sort of thing. So again, we had to keep it dynamic. We had to make sure that we're feeding people and it was nutritious and it was healthy and yummy. And I'm like, you know, I'm always going to cook food with the same care and love, regardless of what it is. And obviously we couldn't do buffet or anything for them. So we were doing boxes of boxed up meals. And again, we sort of followed this Nunu night in feeling, which would we'd do specialty dinners and take them to various places around the world. It became a very... Um, a very idyllic little bubble, really, but but constant. So it, the net result of all that is, I think I've had eight days off since March. But I mean, and 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 obviously, owning your own restaurant is always a seven day a week operation. But this is like that on steroids. Like this, it hasn't. There's been no sleep at all. It's been like being fired out of the end of a rocket. <laughs> at the whole time, and a high stakes game at that. You know, you just don't know. But that makes me feel really alive. <laughs> you mentioned that you originally were only going to move there for a couple of years and you've been there 17 years now. What what, what uh, drew you to go move to North Queensland? I think at first it was just that time. I was 27 years old and I was just sick and tired of Melbourne. I, I had grown up in, in East Gippsland in country Victoria and uh, all the things that I wanted to escape, the city presented. So, you know, the, the claustrophobia and just everyone knowing your business in a country town and the, the feeling of limitations, you know, means I just wanted the anonymity of the city and I just loved it. I just absolutely loved it. I did really well in high school and I went to university for a while doing what I thought I should do, which was like a double degree in science and engineering at Melbourne Uni. I fucking hated it and I was so depressed and I just got lost. And, you know, as, as a lot of these stories sort of seem to um, converge for so many of us. Like I found myself washing dishes uh, in a pub kitchen in North Melbourne and, and then in Collingwood. And I just started to get a, a, a sniff of something that, some new world, something that, something I hadn't witnessed before. Or I didn't even consider a career option for me. My, both my parents are professionals, they're pharmacists. I thought that's what I should do. I just didn't think that I would ever be a cook. My parents aren't particularly good cooks. They were great party. You know, they threw an awesome party and they had a real sense of ceremony when it came to, you know, the hosting parties in the 80s and that sort of thing. Um, you know, and I just even telling this story, you know, remembering the smell of my dad's cologne and, you know, the, the, the music that would be on pre-entertaining people and that sense of purpose and occasion. But no, neither of them were uh, particularly good cooks. And growing up in country Victoria, you know, I, I didn't realise what a, what a treasure trove of, of community and, and sharing of ingredients. You know, when I think back, whilst we weren't great cooks, you know, we had heaps of fruit trees and my neighbour, the Vietnam vet, you know, came and, took the, came and took all the apricots and would mow our lawns and somehow or other he would do something for the policeman who would in turn drop off fresh fish on our front door wrapped in, a, in newspaper and would get cheap scripts at the pharmacy. So there was that real sense of sort of network and neighbourhood, which I wanted to turn my back on in Melbourne. And then once I kind of decided, hey, maybe I'll, maybe I'll give this cooking thing a go, my wife, for her 21st, her parents took us to Jacques Ramon and I had never been to a fancy restaurant like that. Like we'd gone for our midweek Mexican <laughs> in Lakes Entrance, but I'd never been anywhere flash. And I couldn't believe it. I was like, this is just insane. This is, this is crazy. And so we, we, we both put ourselves through cooking school and, 
And from there, I got a job in a real kitchen. And, and be, you know, that, it's that classic story of when you know what you want to do as opposed to doing what you think you should do. It just becomes effortless. And, the, and the, that, that blurry line between work and play and, and, and interest and, and all of your endeavours sort of coalesce into this, this thing you do, you know. And I, I, all of a sudden, I turn around and I've been doing it for 25 years. But I just, I fell so incredibly in love with cooking and I thought that it was just everything. I, it, was, it completely fulfilled my entire life in every single way. And so I moved through the ranks pretty quickly, you know, and I just kept putting my hands up for things and kept trying new challenges. And, uh, but, but again, it kind of lost a little bit of its shine living in the city. Maybe it was all the, I don't know, it felt like a lack of authenticity, even though we're in the, we're in the best restaurants, you know. And we, we ended up here on a whim, but what, what became immediately um, evident, it was like I was back where I started. <laughs> and, and, and those relationships were real again, they were tangible. And there was a sort of sense, there was a sense of authenticity. And I think, you know, just sort of bring this full circle to the COVID conversation, we've always prided ourselves, I don't know local, regional, all that sort of, everyone is so hell-bent on waxing lyrical about this shit, but the reality is that was always what our restaurant was about. It was, it was always about being very, very regionally specific and, and telling the story of where we lived because I'm very proud of where, we, where we're from here in, in far north Queensland. It's so unique and so different to the rest of Australia. And it really is a sense of, um, of enchantment and wonder when people get here, you know. I know during this time you've, you've done multiple sort of cuisines and all sorts of interesting things, but tell us about Nunu and about the ingredients of, of that region because it is so different, as you say. What, do you, what, do you, what are you doing there? Well, <laughs> everything all the time, it would seem. Um, you know, I think what's the spirit of Nunu was always luxury. When we first opened up, you know, I was a 27-year-old luxury for me with probably a pair of snakeskin trousers. But, um, you know, luxury now is still a cornerstone of the Nunu brand, but luxury now is really about, really about having something to say and, and telling the story of a place and, and having the time to do that, you know, and having real and tangible relationships. Not, not just with my staff or my team or my family and friends, but with my customers. And, I, and, you know, I thought it was all cooking was the reason I did this, but it's not. The reason I do this is people. You know, I just love, I just love people. I love, the, I love the stories that get told every day in the dining room. And so what are the special ingredients? Well, the special ingredients are those that present, itself, present themselves each, each week as, you know, as this, the tropics just wash up and, you know, wash over us. So there's always exciting things. And, 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 and so, you know, what, what was luxury in the city, you know, in the, the late 90s and early 2000s, which was truffles and whatever else could have been flown in from anywhere, it's not as luxurious to me. Like if I think of a true luxury product here, occasionally I get small parcels of, of um, rice or there's, I could tell you another story about sago. So, you know, getting real sago from the uh, the islanders and to mash the, the the trunk of a sago palm and then collect collect the residue and then have it dry out in the sun and then that's a beautiful starch and thickening agent and then to use that simmered with fresh coconut cream and palm sugar or or rice so you know one of my good friends ricky who supplies a large amount of fruit and vegetables for the restaurant is from lao or traditionally from lao and they grow a small amount of rice for the family and as hopelessly romantic as it sounds, you know, they hand thresh the rice and, and it's, it's all broken up and they drag it out into the sun each day to dry it and then drag it back into the shed. And, and there's this 
for me, that's luxury. Like the, the luxury is the fact that this someone gives a shit that much, <laughs> and I and I can't I can't buy quantities of it off him. I just get a small amount that are excess to the family's needs, and if I can then you know coerce that little bit of rice into something special for my customers, they get to share in that storytelling and and everyone is part of this network of, of ideas and love and you know that's what I'm about. That's the stuff that I believe the most in. But other than that, you know, there's <laughs> coconuts and palm hearts and exotic fruits and oh, it's just it's just an incredibly diverse landscape from the outer reef all the way to the coast and the mangroves in the jungle and then up onto the tablelands we have we sport one of the only rainforest dairies in the world we have untold amounts of rain every year and then you know verdant green and sunshine and drama and it's all so vivid and exciting i just absolutely absolutely love it could you talk us through one or two of your dishes that you have on the menu at the moment that speak of the tropics and the region that you're in um i can think of quite a few of them actually so for instance one of the uh one a dessert that we would be doing at the moment is again with the um with some sago and some some uh what am i cassava so ricky grows a lot of cassava which is the precursor to tapioca but a beautiful starchy root that grows laterally in the ground and because of that it has a it can be really crisp when fried or it's a really fantastic setting agent for things so we we cook cassava and some sago starch with super super fermented bananas so bananas that are just beyond ripe when they get really really delicious and then you put them in the freezer for a few months and because of this the, the sugar content is so high that they don't freeze so they continue to slowly ferment even in the freezer and go just this gooey dark <laughs> i'm not selling a very beautiful picture but i promise you it's very delicious um uh, bananas and have that sort of strewn through the cassava and some coconut cream and sugar and bake it into a gooey gooey custard uh, gooey sort of pudding and then we serve that with banana toffee so banana cooked down again even further with just a little bit of sugar and some salt until it becomes almost like a midnight black banana toffee that's like the most banana-y banana you've ever tasted and then with that we finish it with some chocolate or cacao nibs at the moment we've been fermenting some cacao to make some cacao or cocoa and eventually we'll try and make some chocolate uh, and so you have this you know traditional riff on flavors i suppose banana and chocolate and coconut but just um told through the lens of the ingredients we have here and and i think that that's that's the bit that i find so exciting and even after 17 years i'm just learning more and more and more about this region i mean just even something as generic as what seemingly generic as a banana um you know we have 24 varieties or so in cans available every weekend at the market from red dakars to longhorns to tiny little spider bananas to you know big green plantains and they all have their own characteristics that can be nurtured and harnessed harnessed into delicious goodiness <laughs> How do you approach food of the region when you've come from chefing in Melbourne and very different ingredients? With, with... Like a child. <laughs> like a child. Ask questions. Just ask questions. And I go to the market. I've been to the market religiously here. Rusty's is like um, like at the cornerstone of our community for so many people. All of, So many storeholders come down from the tablelands or just small little backyard farmers and growers and islanders and so many different nationalities and it's just you know initially i just started working my way through it if i didn't know what it was 
I would ask, I would get it, and I would test it every single way I knew how. And if you approach it with that childlike quality and try and do away with what things should be in your mind, the pathways, I mean, the pathways exist there for a reason, you know, so that, that's, your, that's your toolkit of ideas. And then you take that toolkit of that, that, that experience with you into this new fertile landscape. And all of a sudden you think, oh, I've done something with that texture before. Maybe I could try this. Maybe I could try that. You know, but at the end of the day, it just has to be yummy. You don't have to worry. You don't have to worry about the rest of the stuff. Just serve yummy food. And and and, and a lot of the stuff at Nuna is not necessarily that highbrow. That's for sure. But it just has to be done with honesty, and it has to be tasty. You know, like I said, whether it's a piece of toast or it's a multi-course dinner, I, I see no differentiation. You said this time has been challenging, but it's a real opportunity for change and also to lean on creativity. What's it been like for you? Has it changed the way that you cook or operate the restaurant? No, I think it's validated my lifestyle choices, if anything. I think what it is is that, you know, there, there was a period in my career that I thought the woulda, coulda, shoulda. Should I have stayed in the big city and tried my hand at the big city restaurants? And, you know, the younger me that, you know, probably craved recognition or whatever else and I thought, could, should I have gone back to Melbourne? And, and, and it's, you know, it's particularly in those dark times when we're just so strapped for cash and you're in this far-flung <laughs> northern outpost thinking to myself, what am I doing? You know, there's two people in the restaurant. This is crazy. Uh, and in those times, I probably thought to myself, you know, a while back, should I be back in the city? But it's, it's events like these. But I think before that, when I moved the restaurant uh, seven years ago from the old location to where we are now which is just incredible like it's really is the you know, only it's no beat no it's absolute beachfront it just goes from deck to grass to sand and palm trees to ocean and I started to realize that this really is my home and you know the things that I celebrate being outdoors being fit and healthy uh, doing lots of sport having genuine interactions with people knowing my neighbors knowing my townsfolk saying you know having routine and discipline and doing all of those things and the restaurant has no walls so in a, in a time like now where it seems that this and we have touch wood been um, very very lucky to have avoided the current um, onset of the threat you know we may get issues in the future I don't, not not saying that we won't but it feels as though that this particular problem is really uh, exacerbated by high density living and, and cold weather and recirculated air. And we are none of those things. A and, and a poor immune system. And, and I just have really, I suppose what it has changed is I've thought a lot more about the connection of all of this. You know, it's, it's far more dynamic than just food or just people. It's health, mental health, community health, nutritional health, um, you know, and it's a very nuanced and complex understanding of what's going on. The health of the restaurant, you know, the financial health of the restaurant, all of these things are so intrinsically connected. You're in a region that is notorious for a lot of tourism. When, when the borders open up and there's people coming in, how do you feel about that? The restaurant to a degree is reliant on that, but how do, how do you feel about having people in and the possible chance of the virus coming? Yeah, I'm, I, I am nervous. It's very difficult. I, I, I've wrangled with this for some time. I really don't know the solution. There's part of me that just the intellectual part of me that says that this is a global concern 
and it should be a national problem with a national solution. But we're a really big country, you know, and, and we do have different needs across the whole country and different, different circumstances. Uh, and, and I don't support the borders being closed. I think that it's, you know, I've been lucky in some ways, but we're still incredibly financially hindered by what's going on. I mean, I halved my revenue. Half of my, my business is events and catering and, uh, and weddings, and, and it's a symbiotic relationship. I can't have one without the other. If, if I was just a restaurant, I would have gone under a long, long time ago. But because I've got bricks and mortar, and then because I can do events, I can do the events. Uh, I only have access to so many corporate gigs and events because I have the restaurant, and I only have the restaurant because without the revenue stream of, of catering, I wouldn't be able to do what I do. And so this, there's this beautiful harmony between the two and the way that they work together. And there's a constant push and a pull and a yin and a yang between how they work. But they, without each other, they wouldn't. And, and that's been very difficult. I mean, I had 100 plus weddings booked for this year, of which I've executed a, a handful, you know, and, and I had corporate. I mean, this was on, on paper looking like the, the, the best year we've ever had. I had conferences booked with deposits paid for up to four, I think, 400 and something people, three dinners in a row. You know, and I had a lot of that business booked for this year, and that got cut off the P&L sheet in one day. Boom. But the weddings, we, you know, the weddings we've had to really work closely with, 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 our, with our clients and, and, you know, negotiate new times we can do it for them. And I'm really excited about the future because I think that this is me, <laughs> the, the eternal optimist <laughs> and hopeless romantic. I really do believe Australia is going to be plunged into the golden age of domestic tourism. I think that there is a real opportunity for us to uh, enjoy our own backyard, see some of the most amazing sights, you know, in our, in our own nation. I don't see us traveling overseas for a long time. And with that, there could be a, there could be a rejuvenation of a lot of these uh, regional areas, the opportunity for people to visit the rock again, go to Uluru, go to Kakadu, go to Broome, go to Western Australia, go to, Come to Cairns, go to the reef again, and come and check it all out. Come down to Tassie and Victoria, and I think that that's going to be a really good time for all of us. But you know, obviously, there's going to have to be done. It's going to have to be done with a level of precaution. It's going to have to be done with clear heads and robust conversation, and making sure that we are staying safe, but at the same time, not letting people go under. You know, I, I feel for Victoria. I mean, what a shit fight that's been. It's just a horror show. It's an absolute horror show. And, uh, you know, only the fittest are going to survive. So it's very, very difficult. I don't, and I don't mean that uh, in a human way. I, mean, I just meant financially um, and with businesses. It's, 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 it's very difficult. So how do I feel about the borders? I'd love to see them opened, but I'd like to see them opened. I want to make sure that we're doing the right thing to um, protect our citizens because in, in Queensland... We've been having a pretty good time, mate. <laughs> We've been having a pretty good time. And, and here it feels as though the threat's a long way away. We haven't had cases in ages and people are going back to their old ways. The industry is notorious for having lots of issues and low profitability. And um, you know, you've, you've come up with a business model which works with all sorts of peaks and troughs. What do you think this period of time will do for the industry? Is, is there some positives that can come out of this for the industry as a whole? Uh, I, I think the initial hit to the face is going to be pretty hard to recover from. 
but I think there will be positives. I don't know exactly how. I'm not an oracle. I don't even know exactly how they look. But I think that um, I, I think of going back to basics and a grassroots ap- approach to things. I do believe our industry was oversaturated. I do think that this is going to sort the wheat from the chaff. If you're not in it for the right reasons and you don't have a strong business plan and a fiscally responsible and a strong sense of what your business does and what your brand is and who your customers are, I can't see you being very prosperous. However, I think the ones that do have a very clear vision, albeit in clearly difficult <laughs> circumstances with not, much, not a lot of clarity around what the future looks like, but the sorts of uh, operators that are prepared to do whatever it takes, you know, to do whatever it takes, to do whatever it takes to continue serving their community because the community needs them. Community needs these social hubs and they need an opportunity and a place for them to go out and, and experience their own lives, you know, not, not, just, not just experience the restaurant. But I mean, I look around the dining room every day and there's people falling in love and falling out of love and there's people just doing what it is they do. The magic that is uh, the magic that is community. Sorry, I'm a waffler. <laughs> you mentioned that you're expecting a real golden era for regional tourism and travel. What's so special yep. about the region that you're in at the moment, and you know what what would people expect when they come up there? I think it's the proximity to uh, the proximity to nature, the proximity to um, there's a real sense when you get off the plane in Cairns that you've entered a different universe from the even, you know, from the humidity and the bats screeching across the sky and the drama of the jungle and the fact that it just wants to grow into every nook and cranny. And, and, and it, it tries, we might, to build these, you know, roads and buildings and everything else. The jungle just wants it all back. I think it's the vibrancy and the the smell of the tropics that, that just seduces people. And it's an opportunity to just visit a different part of Australia. The thing I've loved the most is, you know, we, you want to have unique experiences. Shit, mate, I want to come to Canberra and have a unique experience. You know, like that's what's so special. And we don't, we don't want to dumb things down and make it the same everywhere. You want to create experiences for people that are really unique. And so that, so that we are... Uh, encouraged to travel and experience and have a sense of wonder when we go places. A little wake up, you know. Well, Nick, you're a bloody inspiration, mate, and a, and, a, and you tell a gra- you tell a great yarn. Uh, we've loved having you on Deep in the Weeds today. Please keep in touch, and uh, we'll talk again soon. Oh, it's my absolute pleasure, mate. It's been a blast. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we share the stories of Australia's HOSPO community, suppliers and producers in search of hope during this pandemic. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds Podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well. <laughs>